and welcome back to the What The Fork Sunland Preview Podcast. Sunland have a new man in the hot seat in Lee Johnson. However, his arrival couldn't spark a change in fortunes, at least on Saturday, as we went down 1-0 at home to bottom of the league table, Wigan Athletic. However, there's no rest for the wicked, as they say. This weekend, Lee Johnson's side faces a really tough trip to high-flying Lincoln City. And to discuss the game and probably the rise of the Imps and much, much more, to preview Saturday's game, most importantly, is a very special guest in the shape of Lincoln City Chairman Clive Nates. How are you doing, Clive? Are you all right? Yeah, great, Graham. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. Thanks for coming on. Most importantly, I think it's more thanks to you than anything else, but um, we've got a fair amount to get through, I suppose. But let's start, I suppose, literally right at the top. It's been a superb first half of the season for your side. How impressed have you been with the start of the season? Yeah, very impressed and uh, ahead of our expectations. Uh, you know, to be honest, I thought it would be uh, a slower start to the season. Um, a lot of changes in January and then the season was curtailed. So not an opportunity for those players that came in in January to really gel. And then again, a lot of changes uh, in the summer transfer window. So for things to click so soon, uh, you know, is very pleasing. And yeah, um, brilliant start, uh, but it is still very early, only a third of the season gone. I was going to say, when it comes to a, a start of season that you've had, because I remember last season you started really, really fast and then sort of maybe sort of evened out, I would say, and got established in this league. But this season you've started well, you've continued well, you've got almost Christmas doing really well. How difficult is it to keep your feet on the ground when you've had probably quite a meteoric rise throughout the leagues and you've got promoted time and time again. How difficult is it to keep your, your feet on the ground and keep expectations, low, not low, but should we say in check? Oh, I think you have to. I mean, it's, you know, anybody that's been following football for a lengthy period of time knows how quickly things can turn around. Uh, you know, you can very easily go through a bad run and slip down the table. I mean, you know, I've been supporting Everton for more than 50 years, so I know a lot about uh, not getting carried away. And, you know, it's the same with uh, any team. You know, be happy if you're doing well. But, you know, you just got to remember that uh, you can turn around very quickly. Yeah, absolutely, it can. I think, in fact, I think the last time we went to Lincoln, if I remember rightly, you lost the previous home game 6-0 and then played us and won 2-0. So if there's ever a time to show how things quickly can change in football, I think our last result probably probably is one of them, isn't it? Yeah, I think there was actually a game in between that 6-0 defeat. Uh, yeah, uh, the 6-0 defeat, we had appointed Michael Appleton on the Friday and I sat next to him at the game watching us get hammered 6-0 by Oxford. And funnily enough, there's a photo that is used so often by the Lincolnshire Echo. And it's of me and Michael, and we just look absolutely stunned. <laughs> you know, thank God we had signed the contract uh, before that game was played. He might have run away. But uh, yeah, I think we play the first game uh, that Michael managed us was actually the 2-1 defeat at Blackpool. And then we played you. And I think it was our only win in Michael's first seven or eight games. Funnily enough, it, and it was a great performance that we had uh, against Sunderland, but it was a sort of one-off in a poor run. 
And then funnily enough, when we came to the Stadium of Light, you beat us quite easily 3-1, but we were going through our best run of the season. Um, we had a six-game run where we won four, drew one, and we lost to you. It was just, you know, everything went wrong in that game. I remember that, like I say, I went to the, the Lincoln away game and it was it was not a good day for us. And it was actually Jack Ross's last game in charge. And then obviously he he was sacked after that and, and whatnot. But I remember being really impressed by the entire performance with Lincoln. Um, but I do remember looking and thinking you had some poor results beforehand and some poor ones afterwards, but in the middle you beat us and then you went on a good run. And like you say, we ended up turning you over at the stadium in life, but I suppose that was during or, or slightly one good spell during Philip Parkinson, I think. But regarding this season, um, the bulk of it has been played behind closed doors. Well, all of it so far pretty much has only been the last weekend where some fans have been allowed in. Um, it's small in quantities, the fans that are going to be let in anyway. It's not capacity crowds. As a custodian of the football club, how hard is it to navigate, I suppose, the finances of football at the moment with what's going on and how many people you can or can't have into a stadium? Yeah, it's uh, extremely difficult. And, uh, you know, so many uncertainties. And one of the big uncertainties was the extent of the rescue package and whether that would actually materialise from the Premier League. And... You know, although it's less than we would have liked because we had probably thought we would get a share of the full 50 million, it wouldn't be split in the way it has. Um, and, yeah, you know, we, we expect by the end of next week to at least have the final amount that we will, we will get uh, from that rescue package. And, you know, at least then there's some certainty from that and, we can sort of plan for the January transfer window, plan how we cover the rest of the shortfall. With the, um, this is a question that just popped into my head just as we're speaking really, but obviously at Sunderland you've got, I would say on average, at least 30,000 fans that would come to a home game since we've been in, in League One at about, say, 20, 15 to 20 pounds an average price a ticket, maybe slightly more. Um, with LinkedIn, obviously a smaller ground, but it's still much more than maybe you would get. Um, it's you know on a stream possibly, but but the streaming system and and the ten pound per head that you pay for the streaming system, does that give you any sort of benefit, or is it just does it not even touch the sides of what you'd normally get on a a match day? No, it doesn't really touch sides because uh, we get an average of nine thousand for our home games. Uh, you know, on the streaming side, we probably get around about 2,600 to 2,800, uh, you know, for a game. So, you know, you can see that doesn't come anywhere close to compensating for the 9,000 that pay for a match ticket, but it's everything else around that as well that you're missing out on. Do you find fans during the period of, of lockdown, shall we say, have kind of maybe pumped more money into the club from a merchandise perspective than they would usually because of that situation? Or has that also deteriorated due to the fact that people, in most cases, haven't been able to get out of the house this year? No, it's deteriorated. Our retail sales are down quite sharply. Um, and that's despite the fact that I think we've really got good kits this season across the three kits that we have. But it's not that easy, you know, to 
get to the shop, you're not coming to the ground. So, you know, there's not, or you're not even going out as much. So there's not the incentive to want to buy the shirt. You're not going to really wear it that much. So, yeah, um, that is also a hit. But you hope if we start at some point this season to get fans back into the stadium, that retail sales, you know, would hopefully pick up. And obviously you've got food and the things that go go with it as well. Um, when it when it comes to finances and stuff like that within the league, obviously there's been a discussion about the rescue package that's been put in place, but it, it felt like, and I don't know a great deal about finance, hence why I'm in, in this job as opposed, to, <laughs> as opposed to finance, but I can imagine like a fan, you were sort of waiting and waiting for something to come out from the EFL that were, you know, the Premier League that we, these clubs and the division below were going to be held, but it felt like there was never like a degree of certainty. Um, I might be asking a really stupid question here, but if like a rescue package wasn't put in place or, or not, not a plan put in place, how many clubs do you think could have, you know, gone out of business or been seriously at risk of it? Well, the EFL had put in some sort of bridging finance and some clubs have availed themselves of that facility to pay, I think, October wages and November wages. So it was at least that in place to, you know, keep clubs going. Um, You know, I think something had to have happened. It was just a question of what the extent was because... You know, the pressure on the Premier League was huge from government. Um, So we were going to get something. It's just we anticipated that this would happen in July, certainly from the comments that we were picking up from Rick Parry at the EFL meetings in July. You know, the expectation was that the rescue package was imminent, that there would be big numbers involved and that we would be happy with what was going to be presented. and. I don't think we've really got answers as to why it didn't materialize uh, at that point. And we've had to wait another four to five months, you know, to, uh, to actually get that package. Was it frustrating when, because I know a lot of clubs put in, some clubs had a trial. I think Middlesbrough just down the road managed to get a thousand fans in for a trial. I think Peterborough had one. Um, there's a cost that was involved, not just in football clubs, in pubs and, and bars and all, all over the UK of putting in COVID safe regulations and getting yourself, as it was called, COVID ready. And I can imagine that doesn't come, you know, that doesn't come cheap. Um, Mm -hmm. When originally there was, everyone put stuff in place and were ready for fans, I think it was sort of the back end of September, if I remember right, the start of October. And that was kind of pulled from under the rug. Was that also like a financial burden as well, getting COVID ready and then having that pulled from underneath you and told you can't play again for the two or three months without at least a minimum fans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of work, you know, that's gone into, you know, get every getting everything ready, and getting one thousand fans in will cost you. Um, I mean, even getting two thousand fans in, you know, we're not going to make much out of that. It's just the fact it's a start, and you hope it's going to lead to more fans down the road coming in, and even just getting. 2,000 fans in just, you know, the excitement that that produces, um, you know, is something that we are very much in favour of, even if there is a, you know, some cost to that. 
it's been great just seeing the fans back on the TV, sort of through the through the screen, even hearing real crowd noise as opposed to fake crowd noise has been quite interesting this weekend. I've loved it. So, you know, I know that. Yeah. That's I mean, I was thing. watching, uh, you know, the highlights of Portsmouth against Peterborough and, you know, just the Portsmouth fans sounded like there was a lot more than just 2,000 in, in, in the stadium. We've had our voices rested for quite a while, so I think we'll all make ourselves heard when we get back, hopefully. <laughs> but, um, going back to the, the actual football, which is, I suppose, the most important thing, the reason we care so much about the things we've just spoken about. But um, you finished last season in sort of 16th after that sort of blistering start. And I think there's reasons for that. Obviously, the manager left to go to Huddersfield and then you had a reappointed manager. And a lot of the time, you have to kind of like stabilise yourself in the division when you get promoted anyway. Um, but when you came back in the summer, you said you're probably above where you thought you'd be at the moment. But but what was the aim of yourself and, and Michael Appleton? Because he strikes me as a very ambitious man. Yes, he is ambitious and uh, the club is ambitious as well, despite the financial constraints. Um, I think we were certainly hoping for a, a top half finish, which would have been an improvement on last season. And with the chance of maybe being in touch with uh, the playoff places, I think that would have been the desire at, at the start of the season. And you know, despite the, the fact that we've had that brilliant start, as I said, it's only around one third of the season that we threw. You know, anything you know is still possible. We've got a, a reasonably small squad. You have injuries, which we have to some extent, to a couple of key players, you know, it's pretty easy to, you know, go on a poor run. So that those still will be, uh, you know, our targets and something that we feel would be a successful season. Talking about the, the success that Lincoln have had, I think one of the big things that I've quite liked about Lincoln and a few of the clubs as well is over the years since you've came up from non-leaguers, Probably a problem, I would say, something they've had, in my opinion, is, is recruitment. Um, when you're looking at players to buy between what would have been Danny Cowley previously and now Michael Appleton, um, what do you look for in a player when it comes to what kind of person you want, person and player you want to attract to, to Lincoln City Football Club? I think it's different, uh, you know, depending on where we've come from. And again, we've you know, we've changed our whole style um, after promotion from League Two. I think it was a lot more pragmatic because of the success that we had in the National League, Danny and Nicky's first season winning the league title and then having that you know, incredible FA Cup run, getting promoted and then getting to the Checker Trade Trophy final and winning it. There was just so much momentum behind the club that we felt we needed to capitalize on that. So the priority was be pragmatic. Let's get promoted out of League Two. And we had the ability to also compete with the top teams uh, in League Two. It just changed coming into League One. It could only change. We don't have the ability to compete with the likes of the Sunderlands, the Portsmouths, the Ipswich. So our whole strategy had a change. And that was, you know, discussed with Danny and Nicky at the start of our League One season. And already 
in, in the close season when Danny and Nicky were there, we started already to bring in different players. So you were looking for players that potentially could have resale value that played better football. Because if you're looking at developing your own players and trying to sell those on to championship club, you've got to be playing, you know, say less pragmatic football. So it led to the change in the type of player that we're looking for. We've also changed as a club. We've now got a director of football in place. Uh, Jess George, he was actually brought in by Danny, but, you know, he's now very much part of what we believe is an ideal structure for us. Um, and together with the with those in the recruitment department, they listen to what the manager wants as a player, the qualities that he wants in each particular position. And it's up to them to go out and try and find players that match the manager's requirements. And then together with the manager, they come up with what are their you know, ideal players to, to recruit for, for the club. Funny you should come on to that with the, the director of football side of things. Um, I think with Sunderland, we've just literally appointed a sporting director. I think it's just a different word, essentially, uh, from what the job may be, although I'm sure Sunderland might put me a little bit differently on that. But it's very much feels like a new thing, even though it's not. I think a lot of fans are used to the manager picks a team, the manager chooses the players and, and so on and so forth. But it's very much a new modern thing that is working in a lot of aspects at a lot of different clubs. And what are the benefits to having a, you know, a director of football or a sporting director, in your opinion? Well, one of the things that Jazz has really you know, helped us with is bringing in Michael Appleton, for instance. We do have a manager succession committee that you know, includes Jazz and meets every couple of months to discuss prospective managers. And that's way ahead of you know, any potential change in our manager. So effectively, just like our scouts are recruiting players, we are scouting potential managers that would take over if Michael left for any reason, whether it's for a good reason, you know, he'd done so well and he's headhunted by a bigger team like Danny and Nicky were, or, you know, he doesn't perform and, you know, uh, he, he has to move on or for, or for any other reason. Um, so that's a big part that Jez plays in the club. And also with the change that we had from Danny and Nicky to Michael, there was somebody who was at the club before the manager joined who could help with the continuity. He knew the staff, he knew what was happening at the club, and he could help the new manager acclimatise. And I think it's a perfect system, especially when you've got a manager like Michael, whose greatest strength is working with the players uh, on the grass. So that allows, you know, all the other, you know, requirements to be done by a, a director of football. So for us, certainly, we believe that's the perfect structure for us and one that as long as we remain in League One and are able to you know, afford a director of football, we would certainly be continuing with uh, that structure. 
think it's because um, Sunderland obviously have had directors of football before, but it's maybe not worked to the extent that we would have liked. But it's I think people are quite excited about this, so it's quite nice to have an insight on you know what that can bring when, and what successful would look like. I suppose in that sense, um, in terms of sort of Lincoln, like I was saying before, I don't want to I don't want to jump too far ahead. But say Lincoln were to be promoted this term, it would be like a really meteoric rise and one of the biggest ones in terms of modern history. Um, when it comes to that rise so far, I'm probably asking a difficult question here, but I'd like to know what the key element you would say was during that success throughout the rise you've had so far and how a club like Sunderland could learn from that success that you've had. Oh, you know, I think the greatest reason for the success is we chose the right management team. Um, and, you know, you can say a lot of work went in to finding the right manager. Um, you know, there were processes in place and, you know, I thought the interview processes were good and all that. You need an amazing amount of luck still, you know, for the right person to be available at the time, you know, you are looking to appoint a new manager. Um, I think if we had started to look for a new manager a couple of weeks later than we did in 2016, the chances are we could have missed out on Danny and Nicky. That's how much, let's say, luck actually came into being able to get Danny and Nicky. I've said it a couple of times to fans, all the stars and planets were just lined up. And I don't think any other manager, you know, could have achieved the success that Danny and Nicky achieved with us over that three-year period. And, you know, again, when it came to, to pick Michael, um, you know, he was recommended to us by Jez. And when you looked at his history at Oxford, at his record there at Oxford, it just seemed he was the absolute perfect appointment for us. But again, you know, he had to be available. He had to be willing to, you know, come to the club. And, you know, it's still early days, but at this stage, it looks like we've made another good appointment. But if he hadn't have been available, would our second of choice been as successful? It's, it's hard. Um, you know, there's no... Now, I can't say there's, you know, something special that's always going, you know, is always going to ensure that you get the right manager. Yeah. I think, um, you know, while we're on the subject of it, obviously it's it's in the past now, and I understand as a football fan very much you want to concentrate on the manager you have now, but based on recent news, it would probably be remiss of me to completely miss it out. Um, as you've touched on before, part of that rise for Lincoln is a lot of it was down to the Cowleys and, and especially with Danny. Um, quite easily, if if fate had been slightly different or, or decisions had been different, Danny Cowley could have been in the the opposition, um, addressing them, the opposition dugout sort of this weekend for the game. As it is, it's, it's not been the case. But were you surprised that Danny Cowley didn't end up at Sunderland? Um, obviously, don't have the full story. I do speak to Danny from time to time, even, you know, since he's left uh, Lincoln City. 
and I knew he did have interest in the job. I've, you know, heard some of the reasons why um, he isn't the manager of Sunderland now. There's other things that have been put out, I would imagine, from the Sunderland side that are maybe a little different to what I've heard. I don't know what the exact truth is. Um, yeah, I, I think he, he would have been uh, a good choice for Sunderland if, you know, it, it had worked out. But, uh, you know, I'm not close enough to say, you know, that Lee Johnson is, you know, for instance, is not going to be a better appointment than Danny and Nicky would have been. We'll never know. If, I mean, it's, it's all ifs and buts at this moment, but say that, um, say the Cowleys had took over at Sunderland, what kind of manager does a club get when they have Danny Cowley from, from your experience? Well, they're getting Danny and Nicky, um, two people that are absolutely passionate about the job. Um, it's 24 7 focus on the job. And I think it's one of the reasons why they don't go through a long run of not winning games. It's one of the things that really attracted me to Danny and Nicky when I looked at the stats. You know, if you go back to the days at Concord Rangers and through at Braintree, they never went more than four games without winning a game. Um, and actually, they continued that record at Lincoln City right up until the end of our League Two title-winning season. Now, we'd already wrapped up the title. I think, you know, everybody had sort of moved, uh, you know, amongst the players. So the mindset had changed. And we didn't win any of our last five games. So funnily enough, that was the one time that Danny and Nicky went through a run of more than four games without winning a game. And I remember actually speaking to Danny after that and, you know, so, you know, they were almost devastated by the fact that they had such a bad run. And I was, you know, as chairman trying to console them, say, well, it didn't really matter, you know, but this is how serious they, they take their job. And, you know, even looking at, at Huddersfield, I think they went through one run of five games also where they didn't win a game. But, you know, you just don't see lengthy, bad runs. And I think that is so important in choosing a manager because it's not just Sunderland fans that have high expectations, it's fans of any club. And as soon as you go through a, a bad run, I mean, it was the same with Michael Appleton, you know, coming in and trying to change the team. He went through, you know, a bad run, Twice last season, and it doesn't take much for fans to start worrying about the managers. So I think it's a massively important attribute that uh, you do want from a manager. Talking about choosing a manager, and I suppose I'm more asking this question based on current circumstances with Sunderland, I guess, and just trying to gain a little bit of an insight. Um, but when you're choosing a manager, and obviously, it's maybe slightly different from second one as, as we did, as opposed to like losing one to a, a high division team like you did with, with Danny. Um, but I wanted to pick your brains a little bit. When, when you lost Danny Cowley, or you lost the Cowley brother, should I say, I can imagine getting the next appointment, especially when you've been on such a good rise, is 
absolutely essential, you know, to get it as close to 100% right as you can. When you're interviewing candidates, you'll have fans that will want a certain person. The fans will choose who their favourite is. And I think that happened with some of them last week and maybe Lee Johnson wasn't. But what is it that you can do as a chairman alongside the people who make that decision to make sure you get as close as 100% right when you're assessing those interviewees to make sure that the appointment is as, as right as it can be at that time, you think? Look, I think it is important to take into account the fans' reaction. Um, not 100% because, you know, they're not part of the process. They can't know as much as that committee that is choosing the manager. Sure. But I think it is important that you choose a manager that the fans are likely to accept. And I'll, I'll take an example of a manager that's probably well known to Sunderland fans, and that's Sam Allardyce. Um, he was appointed manager at Team I've supported for more than 50 years, Everton. He just was never going to be accepted in the same way he was never going to be accepted at Newcastle. You were always, I think, on a, a hiding to nothing. He had to succeed because there was no leeway you know, for failure or you just had a manager like that had to deliver uh, in a hurry. So I think that that's, you know, the type of management appointment that you've got to try and avoid. But, you know, I don't think you can just always follow, you know, the fan base's favourite choice, you know. There's got to be more to that. Uh, and, uh, you know, if that committee at any club has done their work, you know, at least at the start, you've got to trust that they have made the you know, the best possible appointment. It's funny you should you should mention about the, the fans' choice and getting soon who everyone wants with. I think a lot of the time, probably Phil Parkinson maybe suffered from that at some and he didn't seem like he was anyone's number one choice. In fact, probably no one's. But um, and that was always against him. And, and lo and behold, here we are with a, a new manager. So there's definitely, I think, in Sunderland's case, moving away was always slightly from sort of management and, and things like that. One thing I did want to ask, and I think this is very much on what's happening with Sunderland right now, and I think this will also be a good insight. But obviously, I know that you attend games recently, not been able to because of multiple reasons, but I know you you frequently away end and things like that in Lincoln. Um, but essentially. You live in uh, Joburg, you live in Johannesburg, and you manage the club majority of the time from a different country. Now, although we can't confirm anything, there's, there's strong rumours that I think Kirill Lewis-Dreyfus, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, will be taking over Sunderland in the near future and with potentially one Satori with a bigger ownership, uh, or bigger percentage of the ownership than what he's got at the moment, with both of them managing from France and from Uruguay uh, in, uh, perspectively. Now, when you're living in a different country, there'll be some fans that I think that's completely fine. There'll be some fans that won't. There'll be some in the middle. But for you personally, what are the pros and the cons of, of owning and managing a club from afar? Um, I think ideally I would want to be closer. Um, but in these days where, you know, it is so easy to communicate. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world. 
I think what is absolutely critical, if you are outside the country, that you have good people on the ground. That is absolutely essential. And I believe in DM Scully, our CEO, we do have you know, a really top-class person that's there to handle the day-to-day the -day, uh, operations. And it's the same with having a, you know, an excellent director of football, which I think we have in Jess George. So as long as you can trust those people to run the day-to-day -day operations, then I don't think there's a problem. Um, I mean, you know, we have regular meetings, uh, you know, formal meetings that are set in the diary, but over and above that, I'm in constant contact with Liam especially. Um, I would be, imagine it's multiple times a day that we're either speaking or texting each other or emailing each other. So, you know, it, I, don't, I don't see uh, a massive problem uh, in uh, being a major shareholder and being the chairman of a club while being based uh, in Johannesburg. I mean, last season, I was over six times in the UK. I probably spent three months in total in the UK. Um, and, you know, there can even be an advantage of uh, living far away. Um, it gives you time just to, to reflect, because if you do live in Lincoln, you know, it's just constant uh, Lincoln City all the time. I feel it when I'm over for a couple of weeks at a time. And it does, get, you know, so, so there are benefits of even being away uh, from the club at times. One thing I was, and I was speaking to you sort of off the record before and off um, away, you know, away from the conversation we're having recorded now about how much I enjoyed my day at Lincoln last year, result aside, which was awful. But I really enjoyed the day out and I thought that the element of the whole day was nice from a community perspective. But one thing I wanted to sort of ask is, I suppose one thing I took was the noise from the fans um, at Lincoln was as loud as I, I had last year, I think. On top of that as well, there was a huge community aspect like throughout the entire ground before the game and after the game. How difficult is it to generate both a solid, regular, loud atmosphere coupled with like a community-centered approach and effectively a results-driven business that can fluctuate mood-wise week on week? I think it's a priority of us to try to do well on the field, but it's equally a priority that we do do well off the field. Um, you know, it just, it's just the right thing firstly to do, to give something back to the community. Um, you know, as a football club, and I think especially in Lincoln, where you know we're the only major club in the city, uh, you're a huge part of that community. So, you know, it's it's extremely important. And I think even you know from a selfish reason, you know, if you can become involved in the community and so that the fans feel that you know it's it's more than just coming to see the club win a game. You know, if you go through a bad period, I think the loyalty will just be a lot greater than if you didn't have a connection, uh, you know, with the fan base. Fantastic. 
Last but not least, obviously we're coming for a game of football on Saturday as well. Hopefully better for my team than it was last year. Um, fans from our side especially can't come. But what kind of game are you expecting on Saturday? Are you looking forward to it? And of course, are you a predictions man? And if so, what's your prediction? No, I don't predict. <laughs> I've stopped doing um, it recently because I get it wrong every week. So I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with you these days. Yeah, um, uh, it'll be interesting, no doubt. Uh, you know, with a new manager, um, I suppose, you know, every club that appoints a new manager looks for a new manager bounce. Um we got it in the second league game uh, that Michael Appleton took, although I would say we didn't get, certainly for the first couple of months, a new manager bounce from Michael as a whole, because I think certainly in our case, we were coming off a very bad run before Michael took over. We might have had the good start under Danny and Nicky, but I think we lost seven of our nine games before Michael took over. So, you know, he wasn't taking over a team that was exactly doing all that well beforehand. And, you know, maybe Lee, in a way, uh, is taking over a similar sort of thing, although I don't think Sunderland have performed certainly uh, as badly as Lincoln City did before Michael took over. Uh, whether that plays a part or not, I'm not sure. Um, but Certainly, it's uh, it's raised the stakes in the game or made it a lot more interesting encounter than it would have been. But in any event, Lincoln City against Sunderland, certainly from a Lincoln City point of view, is a massive game for us. Uh, we're also second. Sunderland, you can say, are right up there in the promotion hunt as well. So from that point of view, it will be a big game in any event. Perfect. Clive, I've generally really, really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me, and I hope you enjoyed yourself as much as as much as I have. I did. Thanks very much, Graham. And yeah, really a great pleasure speaking to you and meeting you. I'd say enjoy Saturday, but I wouldn't mean it. But <laughs> good luck for <laughs> well, the rest of the season. <laughs>